podcast is from a London Business School event chaired by Yannis Yano, Associate Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship. This panel is part of an event series, Big Ideas for a Changing World, developed in partnership with financial services firm Baird. Please join me in welcoming today on this panel, Ms. Hagen Sabionsen, here we go, Country Sustainability Manager for UK and Ireland for the IKEA Group. Thank you, Megan, for being here. Mr. Michael Beutler, who is the Director of Sustainability Operations at Caring. Welcome, Michael. Mr. Daniel Clear, who is the Group General Manager, Group Head of Strategy and Global Head of Sustainable Finance for HSBC. And Mr. Mark Goff, Executive Director of the Natural Capital Coalition. Welcome to all of you. So the first question that I have prepared for my panelists, essentially, to tell us a bit about themselves and their role in their companies and organizations, but importantly, from their point of view, to tell us what are these trends that they're seeing in the broader environmental and social space? From their point of view, what are these demands and expectations for more responsibility? Okay, so perhaps, Hege, we start with you, and then I don't like this linear thinking. Oh, so, no, here you go. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, thank you so much for inviting me. Really nice to be here. Nice to see a good turnout. Nice to see you all. Well, first of all, of course, it's really important to highlight that this isn't IKEA, it's a 75 year old company. And uh, I think in an audience like this, I probably don't really need to tell anyone who IKEA is, but it's always fun to ask who in this room has something from IKEA at home? <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, just a sort of a, it's just a sort of a quick sense of how we touch people's lives in the day to day. And I think that's where we play a really unique role. And uh, of course, that's also why, what my job, why I feel that my job is really exciting because it's really about changing the everyday for the many. And my point really is to, when we talk about challenges and why we're responding to sustainability, it's important to highlight that this isn't about responding to trends or external pressure at the core. It's very much around the fact that we are a purpose-led company from the beginning. We just celebrated 75 years this year. And we are, our mission is to create a, a better everyday life for the many people. And of course, that's not just something we say or put on our reports. It's actually something that we use day to day as a bit of a North Star around are we actually doing this for the many? Is this product or the service is, is what we're doing serving the many? And it's also very much embedded in our values and how we operate as a business at the core. And of course, uh, Ingvar Kamprad, our founder who died last year, of course, uh, he's also said that throwing away resource was one of the biggest sins ever. He came from a very poor area of Sweden. So that all said, we also see, of course, that we are a big global company. We use something like 1% of the world's commercial wood we use up to 1% of the world's commercial cotton supply. So, of course, it goes without saying that if we want to be around for another 75 years or 150 years, we have to manage those two sets of materials extremely responsibly. So, of course, it's in our own interest to think holistically and manage and steward everything that our business relies on, including people and where they live and their livelihoods in the long term. So it's absolutely critical to our growth. And of course, our customers are also saying, we don't want to buy from companies that we can't you know, make sure that they are actually acting responsibly. So we get it from our customers as well. And of course, there's the external landscape around us that supports that even further. And also, a really important point, because I can talk a lot about this and I won't, <laughs> uh, is that we really see it as, a, as an innovation driver for the future too. We have to actually be future fit. We're not here to argue whether climate change or not is happening. It is, and we believe it, and we believe it's man-made. So of course, for us to be around and have a product and a business that will survive in the future is absolutely um, critical for how we do that. 
Great, thank you. Okay, clearly, a lot of issues to discuss, right? Ranging from values to purpose to innovation and, and so on. I'm particularly interested, and I'll come back to you on the values because, you know, guys, if you're reading the news these days, so a lot of companies say, oh, we have values, this all dance, kumbaya, and save the world. It doesn't usually, it's not typically believable that way. Yeah, and takes... we don't do that at IKEA, by the way. We don't. Of course not. That's why uh, <laughs> I would be interested in understanding this whole idea of mobilizing an entire organization towards, uh, towards values. And we'll get to the innovation in a second. And Daniel, if you could answer the same question, please. Thank you, and real pleasure to be here. I think it's a, it's a great topic, and I'm pleased that actually one of the leading education institutions is taking this up. We'll come back to education, which I think is very important. So I think for us, achieving the sustainable development goals, in particular climate change, is one of the biggest societal problems, challenges of the next century, and potentially the end of the century if we don't get it right. And we know that we need about 100 trillion of investments to achieve climate change in particular, but also the broader SDG agenda. Hence, we know that the financial services sector has a very important role to play in this because we need to mobilize this money. So we think about 100 trillion between now and 2030. That's about six to eight trillion per annum. And at the moment, we're investing about half a trillion into climate change related and SDG related activities. So half a trillion versus six to eight and we know we need to mobilize that quickly because we're running out of time. And the recent um, SPPC report essentially told us that. And we know we're off track from the Paris Agreement. So for us, we look at climate change and the broader sustainability agenda as probably one of the biggest business opportunities. I think it's important that we see this as an opportunity because that's what mobilizes people. Investments is something good for a bank, and we, we like that. We also look at this as one of the biggest risks. We know that if we don't get climate change right, we will have assets on our balance sheet that will suffer. Some of you will have seen that the Bank of England has published a consultation paper last week, which essentially calls for banks to embed climate risk in the way they run credit risk. We have started this this year, and it's, it's very eye-opening. There are many assets on our balance sheet that may not perform well under a transition to a low-carbon economy. But we also look at this topic as a right to come back into society. We all know that banks, even a decade after the financial crisis, are still not seen as a part of society. And I think for us it's very important that we play our purpose and our role and do something that, that is important for the next generations and the next decades to come. Mm -hmm. So we can talk a little bit more about this, but we, we essentially created my role a year ago as, as head of sustainable finance realizing that this isn't a topic that you can achieve by giving it to someone in the organization. This has to be led by the CEO, it has to be led top down because it really applies everywhere. It's every client segment, it's every geography, it's every product. It's a green bond that we facilitate in China down to a wind farm that we finance in Mexico or a green retail investment product in Saudi Arabia. And it's really the full spectrum, and that's why we created essentially a, a global role, made a commitment of 100 billion financing to move this agenda forward. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about it as we go. Yeah, yeah. so great, because uh, I'm very interested in what you said, kind of the, kind of the social license to operate and re-entering the conversation yeah. through these commitments, perhaps. And uh, one thing that, uh, because Hegel's talked about values before, I'm interested in 
from your perspective, right, how can you enable or in some ways legitimize uh, what companies themselves are doing as external sources of financing or as external sources of capital in that case? In other words, what's the interface between you and the businesses, right? Because some of, including HSBC, if I'm not mistaken, you take strong stance out there, right? They're saying, well, I'm not going to give any financing to new coal plants, for instance, and so on, or coal fire plants and so on. So I want to understand what is that kind of the degree of how you as a finance or sustainable finance legitimize perhaps and enable some of these initiatives at the, at the company level. I, th I think in our view, if we are a good bank, we essentially finance the economy of the future, right? Our balance sheet should look like the economy in 20 years from now and not like the economy 10 or 20 years ago, yeah. which I think is generally the view of finance, right? Finance likes to look at risk in the rear mirror, look at balance sheets, look at P&Ls, and have a look at sort of how, how solid we think a company is. But to make this happen, we need to look at how will the transportation sector perform in a transition to electric vehicles? How will the utility sector perform as we move into renewables? Mm -hmm. How will steel look like in, in a few years from now? And I think we, we all understand that there's a great topic around solar and wind, but the real interesting bit is now to go into the harder sectors. I think the statistic that explains everything is that the 100 largest companies in the world are responsible for 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So we need to move these large sectors. The steel sector globally is responsible for 8% of greenhouse gas emissions, and it's a handful of names. So right. our job is to work with these companies, provide financial tools to nudge them along the way. Yeah. And the good thing is that the large investors in the world, the big pension funds, the big sovereign wealth funds, and increasingly retail investors actually are asking for these products. And right. that's our role is to bring <clears throat> investor appetite and, and need for investment together. Right. right. And, and you, you pointed out an interesting issue was, again, I often tell our students here, is not, it's not that as an executive you start from neutral and say, oh, what can I do on the ESG space? You are starting with the perception that you're part of the problem. Right? as you try to transition into part of the solution, which can, can make for a, you know, an, quite an upward climb if you try to, to implement these commitments in your organization. So, Mark, same question about you, but also tell us a bit more about the Natural Capital Coalition and how it functions vis-a-vis -vis these broader environmental challenges and what the role of the Natural Capital Coalition is. So, for me, I think the sustainability movement. I've been spent the last 20-odd years in business in global 500 companies, helping them with strategies, trying to do that internal drivers to get organizations to understand how this fits. The thing for me is I think it's going through a transition now, which is very obvious, almost from those younger years of running around like a kid, thinking you got the right idea, knowing what you got to do, and then realizing it was completely the wrong thing to do, to actually into some teenage years where there's a little bit of grumpiness going on, yeah. there's a little bit of maybe holding back, but there's also a lot of momentum and energy mm -hmm. and enthusiasm and ideas around the whole sustainability movement. And the natural capital piece of this, there's been an awful lot that's gone on over the last 20, 25 years, different movements, different approaches. The reason why I left a good corporate job to go and work for an NGO with no money, no job prospects, no, all that sort of thing, is, is because there's actually the idea of thinking about this as a capital, and I'd suggest that LBS impact is possibly wrong. I know we're going to get to this hopefully later. But it's about the idea of thinking about a dependency, actually. We're dependent upon these relationships we have with other people, with nature, etc. And when you think about it as that dependency, it becomes core. Mm -hmm. So 
the capital's idea is a metaphor. We're not talking about fungibility. We're not talking about taking something and then selling it to something else. We're talking about the idea of a, a relationship, a resource, and what is the return that comes from that. We take the returns from financials, but we don't take the returns from social engagement from nature. How do we get that into the decision making? And the number one thing I think for this, which is why the movement here, which is growing massively around natural capital, is the idea that we're making ill-informed decisions at the moment. That's coming across all the time because we're not valuing the things that are important. The system is broken. It's not making sense. And then within so many organizations around the world, there's people now that are challenged with that. Mm -hmm. So when we started looking at piloting companies, we thought we might get 12 that would do this. We had 500 come to us without us even going to them because there was people in those organizations that knew that there was something that needed to change. So there is an awful lot of momentum. 95% of the world's countries now are doing something around natural capital. 80 countries actually have statements about doing something at a national level. There's businesses working all around the world because it's a way that you can start linking up all of those sustainability initiatives to make sense of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So great. So I, I want to return to that broader framing issue that you essentially said, because I think that drives a lot of the attitudes and the mental ways with which we look at natural capital. You, you said, you know, we should change from impact to dependency. So we're going to go a bit deeper into that and try to understand how perhaps that framing, especially when it comes with a coalition of partners, perhaps how it translates internally into companies and mobilize them, right? Going from the impact to the, to the dependency mind frame. So, Michael, uh, same question to you before I start bombarding all of you with questions. So this is your opening remarks and statement. So, first of all, what is caring? Anyone here in the room heard of caring? Okay, maybe you've heard a few of our brands. Anyone heard of Gucci? <laughs> okay, so that's basically, we're, we're a company that has, get the number right, 13 brands right now. Some of them are well-known like Gucci, some of them are Alexander McQueen is, is a, one of our brands based here in London. But you know, when we look at sustainability, we look at basically you think of us as a fashion show, as you know, very glitzy, but luxury in its core is when you're talking about clothing, it's agriculture, it's farms, it's you know, leather, it's it's wool. When you think about jewelry and watches, which we also own some brands of that, it's mining. So at our root is really resources coming from the planet. Now, we happen to be one of those companies, 500 <laughs> companies, of the 50,000 worldwide that are doing some kind of natural capital. We actually started doing natural capital measurement about uh, eight years ago. We did that because we want to understand, in a sense, our relationship between us and nature that we depend on and be able to measure that. Because we are, in this case, which will get to your question about engagement, but our CEO had seen that relationship because we piled it within one of our brands, which was then Puma, which is not long, no longer part of Caring, but at that point was. And we had piloted that idea and saw it was interesting. So we scaled it across our group. Why? Because we depend on natural resources and high quality natural resources to create luxury goods. So when we tried to recreate a silk collection from the 1960s, we couldn't find that quality of silk anymore on the planet because of many reasons, because of demand on silk, because of there's some theories about pollution affecting the DNA of silkworms, but these are some of the, the, the issues that we face. So for us, climate change, when we look at biodiversity, because that is important when you're looking at resources in terms of supporting the ecosystems we depend on, we look at these topics with something like 
I think in the last, since 1976, I'll probably misquote it, I just read it in the BBC, the level of, of species loss has been unprecedented. 60%, 60 since 1970. 60%, thank We're you doing for well. bailing me out. And, um, we're winning. We're winning. We're winning. We're beating nature. Yeah, yeah exactly. Nature. Don't use that but word this, with me. <laughs> that's going to be core to our business. It's actually going to be core to our lives. Yeah. So these topics, whether it's industrial agriculture and the impact in terms of the inefficiencies that creates, whether it's climate change from inefficient agricultural systems, and it can even be from even new technologies that sometimes aren't as good as the old, old ways of doing things. These are all things we try to capture and measure as part of our, I'll say, um, how we manage our business. Right. So we measure our footprint in using natural capital to gain, I guess, an understanding and to try to do things in a way that we believe will affect the rest of our industry. And, you know, people, I'm sitting next to them thinking, oh, my God, you know, do some really big scale. Everyone has Ikea. And, you know, <laughs> it's like big scale investment projects. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you think about fashion, fashion copies luxury. So we put something on the runway, Pretty soon, Zara, H&M, they follow the trends. So sustainability in the, the fashion industry is a bit of imperative because some, by some estimates, 10 to 12% of our personal footprints are from the clothes that we're wearing. So it's not just a trivial little thing that's off in the corner of our lives. It's actually really important in terms of how we use and our relationship with the resources that we're using as people as well. So. Great. So I've, I'm, I'm going That's to note four words from mm -hmm. your comments. Necessity, risk, dependence, and values. Right? And to me, those sound, you know, a lot of the times you, you feel like you're preaching to the choir because you say, well, aren't those things obvious? Like if it's a necessity or a risk or if it's building into the values or we know that we explicitly depend on it, then, well, I guess the natural question to ask is, why is, aren't more companies doing it? Or why do they pay lip service? Or why do they greenwash in order to appear that they are doing it? Because these are, forget about the growth opportunity for a second. If you think about necessity dependent risk or it's built in, then you would do it anyway. So I guess my question to all of you is, as you implement this kind of approaches, whether from a necessity or a risk or a values or a uh, dependence point of view, what were the challenges that you faced? And feel free to refer to particular initiatives that you tried to implement and you found as well, because I think that can also tell us a bit about why is it that others don't do it or try to do it or try to fake their way through doing it? Well, I, f I feel since I mentioned values that I need to follow up on that. It's not so much about how we implemented them initially, because obviously they've been part of the business for a really long time. And I can use a, a recent example of where it's showing up as challenge to move the organization, even in an organization like IKEA that has, you know, on the surface of things, ticking all the boxes and doing all the right things. Because at the moment, we this year we launched our new people, well, our new version of our People and Planet Positive Strategy, which is our sustainability framework. And a couple examples of our very ambitious goals is to become a 100% circular business. It makes me both very excited and quite nervous to even think about what that's going to mean for us. And of course, laddering up to that means that by 2025, we're going to only use recycled and renewable materials in our, all our products. And it will mean that we will be taking back potentially all the products that we produce. So 
if you just think about that for a second, that means a complete redesign of our supply chain, it means a complete redesign of our operations and our logistics, it means a complete redesign of how we measure value. If you think about it, we're still very much structured as a linear retailer because that you know we still have P&Ls, profit and loss, we still have profit and look at that. Of course, we have other measures too. But just to shift this mindset around the end of the first life of a product, it's just the beginning of second, third, fourth life and that there is value attached and multiple income streams at those junctures, that takes a complete mobilization of the entire business. So when I mention that as an example, it's because that is a challenge we are working on right now, every day. And of course, it means that we need to uh, have a very robust global level strategy in place. So we have to have that linked in. We have to then mobilize from the top down and the ground up and really look at how do we invest in pockets of innovation so we can test different capabilities across that system, if you like. So a question, just yeah. to follow up, to make it a bit more micro in terms yes. of how do we implement it. So are you talking about, for example, is this part of your recruitment? Is this part of your incentives? Is this part of you know, your internal sort of recognition in part of, uh, of how you give awards to employees? Or how do you do your internal communications? In other words, who drives that strategy, right? Because who drives that strategy, especially when it comes to mobilizing the employees in particular towards that direction, right? Because it's, it's easy to, uh, and now I'm talking about you, a lot of, again, a lot of companies claim to do this, but when you ask them, you know, but yeah, show me how, right? You cannot tell me you're out there to save the world and then you incentivize everyone on quarterly sales. Right? That's not how you're going to say, you know? So what can you tell us a bit, and especially I'm interested in those measures that you found resistance to, mm -hmm. right? Or, or you felt that for your industry, you're sort of sticking your head out with a risk in terms of doing that. Well, just to take it right back to basics then, I think we actually have a, an evaluation framework for all recruitment that's based on values. So, and this is quite unusual, I think, for most companies is that Sometimes there is a preference for value match over, say, academic background. Because actually what we see in the long term is that when there is a belief in the core mission and a value alignment, mm -hmm. that person will go the extra mile, they will be committed to the company and the core purpose of what we try to achieve. And there is a reason, so I've only been with IKEA for three and a half years, and that's in IKEA years, that's like infancy. And when I started, you know, constantly met people who'd been with the company 14 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. So there is something about how they're kept alive. So yes, it starts with recruitment and of course, how it's, how it's incentivized. Broadly think, embedded. Yeah, right? no, I mean, of course it comes across right from linking yeah. to a certain extent to bonus. So, you know, there's nothing that moves action as much as linking it to bonus. So uh, if actually, you know, working on your waste goals, not just for the cost-saving aspect, but from the environmental perspective through to working with factories in China on, on social impact, if that's linked to your incentives financially, but also for broader incentives, mm -hmm. of course you move those actions. So mm -hmm. it's, it's linked right from strategy through to goals, right down to recruitment. Right. And that gives you a sort of a... Right. Does that resonate with any of, of you guys? Or Mark, any, any work? Because you mentioned that you weren't on this, on this kind of change of mind frames for companies and you have worked with many of them and trying to change them. Can you tell us any examples? I'm, you know, again, I'm particularly interested in either near failures or almost failures or impossible to change because perhaps there's something to learn from those, right? But also more broadly about the initiatives that you've been engaged with. So I think that there is an awful lot of companies that are trying to do something. 
and everyone has their own little program, one of the biggest things that people come back to us is, is that I get it, how do I convince the other people in my company to mm -hmm. get it? And yeah. that's a challenge that always comes back at some point. Yeah. So you've got the champions there. What's really happened with a lot of the companies that have tried three or four times to do some work around the capitalist idea, this, this metaphor that we're using, is that they've then realized that we're talking about shared assets, we're talking about shared costs and shared benefits. And companies are set up in a very predominantly ownership model where they have control of all the information. They go down their supply chains and they collect all that information, it goes into their proprietary system. They're not used to working across a shared basis, really. Mm -hmm. So although you were talking earlier on, the business model is great, it's a very closed system. And actually, everything, one thing nature teaches us, is everything's connected. Mm -hmm. You can't take one species out and still have the same ecosystem. Everything changes. So most of the companies that are starting to get this, Olam is a great one, big company from Singapore, is really looking to change the way it is thinking about its social value, its natural value, etc. They've done eight pilots with us now, and they've come back and said, what we really need to do is understand what the other people are doing in the watershed. There's no good us making these changes. It's about government policy. It's about financial incentives. It's about making sure the money's flowing to it. It's about the NGO supporting it. It's about the academic support and understanding of what we've got to do. It's all of those places. The systems change piece yeah. is key. There are plenty of companies, and we find this a lot, that I'd say about 80% of the companies that pick up the work that we're doing never finish it. Mm -hmm. This is a success. You have yeah. to ask for failures, but this is a success. Yeah. Because what happens is, is they pick it up, they start going through it, and then they realize they don't actually understand their business model. They go around the business, they don't know what they do. And actually this challenges, do they understand it? Yeah. Or they ask the people in the business and they get 5,000 different answers. Yeah. They don't know who their suppliers are. They thought they had a list of them. They have their risk register. Yeah. They don't really understand why it's like that. They don't value it properly. Yeah. Most of the companies that we work with go through the process, identify a problem and make improvements to their business, which are all very valuable, mm -hmm. but they don't get through to the point about changing the decisions yet, because yeah. we're still at that stage about really understanding what they're doing. Right. So you sparked one more question. I'll, I'll give the floor to Daniel in, in one second if I could pose this bigger question as well, because I hear you saying that, well, there's at least two sources of change. One of them is people adopting their behaviors or companies adopting their behaviors and so on after they figure out what they're doing, which is a big one, actually. <laughs> but the second one is replacement, right? And that can happen either at the level of the industry, so new companies are just going to come in and get this, right? And they're not going to have the weights of the past delaying them in understanding the impact of the environment and so on. And, and then the other one, of course, is the adaptation part. So in that sense, and again, a bigger question for all of you, do you feel that this might be a generational issue? in terms of who is the pocket of resistance in organizations. Do you see any difference between the millennia? Because a lot of, uh, is talked about them, but I want to know from your experience, the, the people that you're hiring now, or the people that you have worked with in terms of the other companies, is that change of attitude? Well, you, should, you should tell us what you were saying earlier on in the green room <laughs> about the students here. I asked the questions here. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. Right. I thought yeah, that was really interesting, right. though. But you, you've been asking every year to your students, about this yeah, yeah, yeah. topic, and there's always been someone saying, no, it's about your businesses are there to make money. Mm. And you're saying this year that... The resistance is going down, yeah. right? I, that, I, that I want to take a slightly controversial view Please on that. Please do. Good. So I, I, I buy that, and I think we hear that from our younger generations that are coming in. Mm. But when I look at real behavioral change, we just don't see that. So when I look at the financial services sector, young people are not suddenly putting their money into ESG-aligned mm -hmm. funds or low-carbon funds. 
young people are not suddenly, when they have a bit of money, not buying the, the Range Rover out, mm. outside their door or avoiding flying. Yeah. So while I think there is a big narrative that the next generation will save it, in real action, we don't see the evidence yet. And right. I'm, I'm not certain we can wait for that. Right. Yeah. So I, I wanted to yeah, yeah, make two, two comments on your, on your earlier question. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. first of all, there's a lot we can do to embed sustainability in the way we operate. So we have it in our scorecards, we have it embedded in our training programs, we have it embedded in our strategies. Our strategy has, we want to be a leader in this space. So it's really a fairly holistic approach and you need to actually make people aware of it because there's so much noise in organizations. So you really need to hit the communications bits, the rewards part, everything. But when it really comes down to making this happen, I think it is still an area where you need incredible leadership. Because the real choices are when we as an organization earlier in this year had to make a big choice whether we are ending the financing for certain sectors. And it was incredibly controversial and it wasn't clear which way we're going to go. But essentially it was the most senior leadership of the group standing up and saying, we believe in this long-term view and we will therefore take a certain decision. And I think it is all good to embed this in the system the real difficult choices need personal leadership. And it doesn't have to be just the most senior person in the organization. There can sometimes be much more junior people, but you need to step out of your normal cage. Yeah. 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 So it's, and it's at, at, at the level, it's a very personal risk even. It's a career risk, right? Because we have read recently stories where, you know, some chief executives put this uh, purpose as a priority and then other partners send letters to the FT saying there's something wrong here. It is a massive right? so, risk, but it is also, I think, for people that have the luxury of a little bit of time as a new CEO in an organization, it is a way to put your stamp on something. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just another guy who delivers quarterly results. Right. And I think more and more people start to realize that you you can actually shape something that's a little bit bigger than you are. Right. It's like Paul Pullman. I'm not sure if it's an actual statement or a legend, but when they asked him, you know, why did you do sustainable living plan on day one or day two, he said, well, they couldn't fire me then because I just <laughs> took over. Michael, how do you convince a, a, an organization and people that come to work in high fashion and high-end brands that actually, you know, you should be concerned about agriculture or mining or commodities, right? Because I can tell you for sure, you know, for that's, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not their priors when they apply to, to, to work for your group, right? Well, so first of all, most people that work for our group work in sales. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'll be honest, that's a high turnover area. So it's difficult to, to really instill, but to retain people, you're seeing more in, in our brands, like, for instance, our brand Gucci, which I mentioned earlier, is now really focusing on talking about sustainability. Because then people can uh, affiliate themselves with the brand. They have a sense of shared values with the company they work for. Now, also, we mentioned millennials, but you, I think there are some things that are probably stereotypical. But one of the things that, that I've seen also is a high rate of turnover. So what's that driven by? It can be driven by shared values. It could be driven by boredom that could be driven by just other things. I don't know what. Mm -hmm. So on that level, there's an engagement aspect. The other thing we do is work a lot with young designers. So with EPNL, which is natural capital, Mark probably makes it sound simple. Well, he would make it sound simple if he explained <laughs> it. But it's actually pretty complicated. But we try to simplify it down into a little app that we could use with design students to talk about, here's the concept. If you design this shoe with this materials from this part of the world, 
Here's what it comes out to as a footprint. If you make some different choices, you can reduce it a lot. So trying to get them to think different, so that's on a design side. With our own leadership, it's in their targets, number one. It's a bit competitive because our brands compete with each other. And when one of our hottest, our two hottest brands now are starting to compete on sustainability. So that's a win because CEOs have egos and they like to win. So if you can tap no. into that, yeah, there you have it. When you talked about business providing yeah, yeah, yeah. solutions, that's why business, that's one of the ways business provides solutions yeah. is people want to win. Yeah. Yep. And if that's what they think the game is, if they think the game is around sustainability, it's around climate change, it's around um, any of those things we've talked about, that's how to tap into them. I think, so, sorry, I think we've got to be a little bit careful. We're talking very much in a, a Western mm. approach here. And we do a lot of work around the world. So that in Singapore, for example, legislation, regulation is irrelevant, really, a lot of it. What happens is you go down to the treetops that are down by the port where the next generation are having their drinks of an evening, and you sit there and you talk to people. And that's where the change is coming from in Singapore. And that's very different from some of the other models that we're talking about here. So I think we've just got to be aware. In Uganda, there's an awful lot of work going on there, once again, because there's government, business, finance, and NGOs that are all aligned around a single purpose. Yeah. So Uganda is coming an entry point into East Africa, which was nothing I would have predicted or expected. So I think that we've just got to be careful that we don't start looking at it just from the perspective that we have here right. sitting in, in yeah. the West, really. Yeah, I'm very glad you brought that issue because I did want to touch on this broader idea of the institutional context, right? And clearly that differs. The financial, the labor market, the cultural system, those differ dramatically sometimes across countries. So I'm very interested in understanding your experiences, right? What kinds of institutions have you seen that have enabled or you think are accelerating, if you like, the adoption of these more environmentally and socially responsible strategies, but also importantly, what kind of institutional gaps, perhaps, right, might hinder this kind of adoption? Now, I'll give you one example. You were talking about earlier, uh, Daniel, about this idea that uh, whether you see or you do not see the millennia actually speaking with their wallets, right? But here's the contrast I see. In, in your case, Michael, you were saying about, you know what, if it's a designer and you make the different choices, they have immediately the information available. Essentially, their potential impact, they can see it right away. Even in the UK, when I try to see the impact of my pension plan in ESG, it's impossible, right? I'm a professional at LBS focusing on ESG. <laughs> it was impossible for me to find out, right? So how could I have these expectations of, you know, uh, someone in, in Lenia that perhaps, you know, they don't even have a pension plan yet, let alone find the information. <laughs> they should, they should find the information, right? So if we talk about that level of institutions, disclosure and accountability, what have you felt like the, the particular institutions that you feel could accelerate these commitments or enable them or legitimize them even, depending on the context, and which of them have you seen being more backward looking, perhaps, or hindering this transition? I can start with the, with the financial services sector, yep. um, because that's... My, my home turf, and then I go beyond. So I think in the finance world, we have an annual survey, and we ask 1,700 issuers and investors, where do you stand on sustainable finance? And you generally, especially at the moment, you, you get 80% of them, especially in Europe, saying, we want to increase our allocation, we want to do more. It drops off a little bit in Asia, and it drops off quite significantly still in the US. But in Europe, more than 80% of investors say, we would like to do more in the space. But then you ask them, why aren't you doing more? And there are three reasons that people say. One is, we are unclear about taxonomy. There are just too many definitions out there. ESG, sustainable finance, responsible investing. 
it, there's still a concern that actually I don't really know what I'm buying and just buying a label that is maybe a greenwash. The second one is lack of disclosure. The markets say, I, I just don't know enough what companies really do. They, they all publish these wonderful reports with a lot of smiling children, but I don't have enough data and glossy whether, yeah, whether a, co a company <laughs> is actually doing the right thing. Yeah. And the, the third thing that they say is there actually isn't enough investment pipeline. So 80% of investors say, I would like to do more, but there isn't enough project available. Mm -hmm. And I think that brings me to the slightly broader picture. The places where we've seen real significant development are places where still governments actually have taken very significant action. I'm German, and a given that was driven by the German government and essentially made renewables internationally competitive. I was in Bombay, or Mumbai last week for two days. India is, I think, the best showcase of how renewables are changing the energy mix in India because the government has taken a very significant stand on it. And mm. in, in, in other areas where the action from central governments isn't strong enough yet. The private sector isn't able yet to make that jump. And as much as we would like the private sector to do the loan, and I think we come to that, unless we have a better collaboration between public and private sector, we were not moving fast enough. Can I make a couple of points on that? I think, um, so we're now working with science-based targets mm -hmm. to meet the SDGs, but also to come in under the one and a half degree rise in temperature. And of course, what we see is that that's, that's not the mandatory. It's not something that all companies have to work towards. And actually, the government goals around us are not ambitious enough to hit those targets. Mm -hmm. So there's only so much we can do as a company, even at the scale of IKEA, of course. And everybody has to work together. When we look at, say, we have signed up to the EV100 commitments, which is 100% all electric deliveries through our home deliveries. And of course, in Shanghai, the government said zero emissions. Somehow, business finds the money to go 100% in overnight. London, 2040, what's that all about? And suddenly, it's 2025. And that's even being way more ambitious than the, the, the policies around us. So you know, having just had the, the UK's first Green Great Britain, Growth Britain Week, whatever, yeah, whatever, because what happened? <laughs> what happened to that? So again, it has Wait to be government, it has to be, has to be policies, yeah. and it has to be cross-sector and cross-organization. Yeah, not alone, but oh. they, yes. they, they set the framework, unfortunately. Absolutely. That's still the world we're in. Um, Definitely. So the, the coalition was formed by a group of people coming together in a bar in Rio plus 20 and deciding, rather than competing, that they could actually collaborate. And it really was a bit of alcohol that got lubrication going. But the, always. Um, always. It always is, yeah. So maybe we should go to the bar later. This, but, uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but the, with that, there are governments. So there's seven worlds, as we call it. And if any of you know Game of Thrones, there's a perfect reason why we called it that. But the um, first one is the NGOs have been telling us why we do it. Then there's the academia and science that's been doing a lot of the work about how we do it. Business is the engine for change. Finance, the oil that keeps mm. that running. The standard setters, which we need to take this into regulation and things like that. We've got the associations that make sense of this and get it to scale. And then the governments. I spend most of my time going around to individual conferences run by each of them. Every single one of them blames someone else in the system. The whole point, and I do agree with you, the pipeline is a problem, but I hear that a lot from the financial system. From the businesses, I hear, we've got lots of projects, but we can't get the money, that actually they're there. From the governments, there's often a push to them to say, just regulate. And then there's an awful lot of lobbyists out there saying, don't regulate. So there's a lot of mixed messages. The solution here is actually that every single one of these plays a part in it, but we're not spending enough time taking a step back and seeing how they connect. The biggest part of this is no single part of the system. It's the gaps between the system yeah. and actually how they flow, how they connect. Yeah. Yeah. If we could get that bit right, I think we would overcome a lot of these problems that we've got. 
it sounds to me that you're kind of referring uh, if what you describe as a gap. There must be some uh, lack of trust across these institutional players, right? Because, for example, I was moderating once a, a workshop uh, across in, the, in a particular industry, and it was remarkable because you they all had the intention of doing something good about sustainability. They realized they had to put their efforts together because you know, the scale required would only make sense if they could come together, right? But it was such fundamental distrust to say that, you know, because there's a free riding problem. Is that if four out of the five commit, suddenly you benefit, right? Without having to incur the cost. So this, and, and that can happen between play, industry players, that can happen between companies and NGOs, that can happen between companies and the government, and NGOs and the government, and so on. So what do you, have you experienced this lack of trust in any particular good or bad ways of how you deal with it? One of the things that we did when we set up the advisory panel for what we're doing, we, most organizations would do that on an organizational level. Mm -hmm. So when an organization, when someone leaves, someone else from that organization comes in, we purposely did it on a personal level. Yeah. Because actually it's about creating a community that trusts each other. Mm -hmm. So we do spend a lot of time going out bowling or going out to a field or doing something together. And it's that group of people that make it, not the organization. When you fall into the organizational bit, you start making decisions about what you think other people should think you should do, mm -hmm. rather than doing it on a personal level. Right. In the end, everyone in all these businesses are people. They've all got drivers. We often hear the thing, oh, I did it because my young daughter is coming up. And that's a thing we hear in sustainability a lot. Mm -hmm. I think it is about those personal relationships. And yeah. most of the time, People do want to trust each other. People do want to find solutions to this. Mm -hmm. We just put up these barriers around what we believe organizations and structures should do. And it's that's the bit, the institutionalization, that ends mm -hmm. up causing blocks from my perspective. Right, and sometimes this translates into laws and regulations because we see a, a, you know, a group of companies in the same industry in the room and, and the immediate reaction of, you know, from the legal aspect is, oh, they're trying to collude on costs or prices, right? Because we have this. On, on this workshop I was telling you about, we tried to understand how to build a detoxifying facility and every time the lawyer says, oh, you cannot discuss this, you cannot discuss that, I'm like, but you, know, you cannot fix sustainability here without talking about the underlying costs. So that's even an institutional barrier, right? Uh, not that we're supporting collusion, but clearly there's a difference between scaling up a sustainability solution versus colluding, you know, and sensible lawyers should be able to see that. So I, I agree, I think the private sector and individuals can do a lot, but I think we all have to accept that there's always a bias to preserve the status quo. Because we yeah. know the status quo and people are very uncomfortable to completely disrupt it. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm German. The German <laughs> car industry didn't care about the electric vehicle when sort of the Netherlands said we're going to go electric and Sweden said we're going to electric. The German car industry woke up when China announced that they're now going electric. And suddenly, the entire German car industry panicked and said, OK, we now have to invest billions. Yeah. And I, I think we need these ambitious disruption. It doesn't have to be just government, but we need ambitious, forward-looking disruptions. And I, I think I completely echo your observation. I was in San Francisco at the, the Climate Action Summit, and there was a, a panel around transportation. <laughs> and, and it was a, a port operator, a shipping operator, an airline, all Western, and then uh, somebody from China running a, a large electric vehicle company. Mm. And everybody was sort of saying, oh, it's all really difficult, and we can't achieve it, and maybe 2030, 2035. And then the, a very small lady from China stood up and said, <laughs> well, by the end of this year, Shenzhen will be completely electric on taxis, next year on minivans, and by the end of 2020, we will not have a single internal combustion engine in the city anymore. We need these step changes now, so I think, mm -hmm. to create the energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Any other comments on this issue? Because I have one more question before I turn to the to the audience. So, Hege, I just want to make a to... point, and I think it's interesting as a as a private company. Of course, we have internal. We're in a unique position that we own most of our supply chain, which is probably you know, unique for most companies, and we have financial resources internally to invest long term. So we're our own internal investment fund, if you like, and. That's unique and actually puts us in a position to take the real long term and to have you know, life cycle costings to our future plans and to really have patient capital as a way to invest in our own long term point of view. And I think there, are, there must be a point to be set around the kind of short term shareholder return on investment approach versus the ability and opportunity to think long term and for the bigger and the longer and for the many. And then I don't know what the answer to that is. I just think it's, a, it's an important point to make because it really works for us as a company, but we're in a unique position to be able to do that. Because, yeah, because of the, the, the private aspect, right? Because I think you are opening a very, very big issue now, of course, yes. which is the, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, how much time do you guys know? <laughs> um, so the, the whole idea of, of this investment community is investment horizons versus long-term versus short-term. So maybe I'll, I'll ask if, if Daniel or, or Michael have any comments on this idea of what is the role of these external investors and the pressures that they're paying, because for you, oftentimes from an investor point of view, and what's the role of the investors in kind of enabling companies to transition? If you like, should they be trying to transition? And then I'll open it up to the, to the audience for questions. I mean, I can speak in, to, in terms of capital markets. So we're a public company, but we have one investor that owns 42%, who happens to be our chairman and CEO, too. So we have a little bit of a, a mix in it. But we still have to talk to the other 58%. And... It's interesting because I would have said up to this year that they don't really, because we're, we're a very fast-growing stock. We had a very good performance last year. For If you told me you know, going to fashion, it'd be like tech. It was like tech. So there, of course, you know, all the investors were very much enamored with that. But this year, you know, if we had questions actually from the fund manager having to do with leather production, a fund manager who happened to be a fund that has about... 5% of our institutional that has about 5% of our, our holdings. And I thought that was interesting. That was the first time a fund manager was actually asking questions about real specific things about treatment of animals and, and slaughterhouses, and like, because this is part of our business. And you know, to me, it was, it was an awakening that you know, this is now becoming, some of these topics are now going into mainstream. Because usually you have your little SRI analyst who asks the questions. But the fund manager doesn't really care what the SRI analysts think. If, you're, if your stock's performing well, you know, it's, mm. it's a buy. Mm. Um, if it's not, you know, it's a hold. If it's not, then, you know, then it isn't. But it was interesting to me that now a portfolio manager was actually starting to ask those questions and was, was real, had a book this thick from, an agent, uh, from a ratings uh, agency called Sustainalytics and was looking through it and asking us questions on it. So to me, the level of sophistication took a huge, like a quantum leap forward. Mm -hmm. And the interest in, I'll say, the real part of the investment community has shifted a bit. Now, does that mean our performance now will be judged by that? Probably not. If you think where most of the money sits in the world, it sits in very often pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and insurance companies. And if you really think about their investment mandate, they normally invest for generations that will go into retirement in 20, 30, 40 years. And I think there is now an increasing awareness with these investors that they should actually support a world that is actually a world people can still retire into. 
So I think that the large institutional uh, investors actually across the world, emerging markets and developed markets, I think have moved significantly. And that led, I think, to the entire ESG movement to become a lot more mainstream. So I think three to five years ago, when we had investor meetings, to your point, there was a, a normal investor meeting or a normal meeting with a rating agency, and then half an hour later, you had the meeting with the SRI investors. This is now becoming one. All of the rating agencies have realized that they are late on this, and they are buying now the analytics of the world to integrate it into an offering. Mm -hmm. And I think that integration of ESGs or environmental social governance elements into the investment process, I think will make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Great, so thank you for your comments. I want to add one thing on this idea because I've heard both of you talking about ESG becoming mainstream. And I, because I do think that framing matters, right? I always found it quite remarkable if we talk in the investment space, when we talk about you know, waking up to the fact that business has an environmental and social context and we define the mainstreams as those that have ignored it. And then we say, oh, is the ESG that's becoming mainstream? The reverse is the ESG that realized the context, and then these guys are waking up to come to what's reality is mainstream as opposed to the market mainstream. But that a personal note. Okay, now I would like to open it to the, uh, the audience. A couple of uh, things I want to take many questions, but not too many statements. So keep your question short to the point, and when you're given the microphone, please tell us who you are briefly, your name that is, the name. <laughs> your company, the question, and to whom is the question addressed? If it's the entire panel, that's also fine. If it's a particular panelist, uh, that's also fine as well. Okay, let's start with the lady on the, on the right, right over there. Hi, uh, my name is Juliette Valdinger. I'm a philanthropy consultant and also doing some work with Project X, who I know IKEA is involved with, so she'll talk to you about that later. My question is really to all of you. A fascinating conversation. I won't rattle on about how much I love you all, but brilliant to hear your <laughs> thoughts and visions. I've been perhaps living in la-la land about... I've been dreaming about the idea of in 20 years' time, I want a company. If it has to register to be a company, it has to be a B Corp. Do you think that is... Not realistic? Do you think it's possible? Would IKEA be a B Corps? I don't know how HSBC would be a B Corps ever, or caring, FTSE, but that's the question. Great, thank you. I'll take a couple before we answer so we can get a couple more. Yes? I'm Donato Calace from Data Moran. So it seems from your interventions that the investor community is one of the most powerful stakeholders to trigger change. My question is to what extent you believe they actually have an an understanding of the material issues that apply to your business models instead of just taking, you know, these thick reports from the ESG rating agencies and just asking questions randomly about issues that are not material for you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And one more question right over there on the last row. Hi, good evening. My name is Wojta Wojcinski. I'm a LBS graduate and I work for Fidelity, but I'm here on my own behalf, not Fidelity. So um, my question is mainly to Daniel and 58% of Michael. Um, so, you know... Like true LBS quant graduate, thank you. <laughs> so I think actually Hager gave me a great segue to this question because private companies, the large private com companies can persevere and execute their vision longer term. However, you guys are under pressure of quarterly or annual earnings, and we've enjoyed a couple of years of fairly good markets, so there's confidence, there's ample capital around, but you know, the first sign of, of recession, which 
some say is, you know, on the horizon. And all those initiatives that are about benevolence, you know, charity, sharing environment, they're the first ones to go. So what kind of reassurance can you give me, particularly Daniel from financial services, is that the second jobs are at stake or bonuses are at stake, is that ESG won't be like, oh, forget it, you know, we, we're, we're in the business of making money. Great. So B Corp, materiality, business cycle, essentially, right? The floor is yours. Should I take the last one? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think... Sounded so, a bit direct. Uh, so, so first of all, I think an excellent question, because if we're all honest with one another, more than 10 years ago, there was already a big sustainability movement, mm -hmm. and it died with the financial crisis. Okay. So I think an absolute right movement is just something that we do because we can afford it at the moment. Mm. I would argue that we're probably a point beyond because we start to see it in commercial realities. Mm. Ten years ago, renewables were a subsidy business. Ten years ago, the electric vehicle was a dream. Ten years ago, it was unthinkable that the bus that, that drives by my house is actually a Chinese electric bus. Mm. It was unthinkable that most property developers are actually now opting for green buildings because they know that actually in the longer term, it has a better rental value and actually property value. So I think the economics are actually overtaking the, the pure belief. And if I look at where sustainability sat 10 years ago in HSBC, it was a function very far away from the core of the bank that did donations. We now have sustainability embedded in every business and in every geography and is part of our strategy. So I think just organizationally, and I think it's true for many organizations that we work with, it moved from the get out of jail card that is sort of really nice to have, which it still is in many emerging markets, to now actually something quite fundamental and part of what we do. So I'm, I'm more optimistic, but I share the concern. If I could use academic privilege for both of you for a moment, by the way, because that's a question that we have studied. What did companies do in times of crisis, especially to the Great Recession? And to be frank with you, despite perceptions that they cut back, if you take the US, what you find is that they did fire people and held back on tangible resources, like you know investments in buildings and that kind of thing. But on social responsibility and innovation, they maintained. They have, on average, they didn't decrease. Some industries that were hugely hit by liquidity, of course they had to. But on average in the US, they actually maintained. And guess what? The ones that may maintain or increase ended up doing better after the crisis, right? Again, for those sleepless nights, I have plenty of academic papers to share. So, <laughs> uh, going by, and, and plenty of econometrics in them too. All right, sorry, the two questions that are still pending, the materiality and the B Corps, and then I will want to take another round of questions. So anyone would like to speak to those? Yes. On the, on the B Corps one, I think um, looking at Unilever's results last year was really interesting. Uh, was it five companies that they've invested in that are B Corps, and that made over 70% of their profit in this last year? That is a trend, seeing, and you were talking about how can companies change. I think there's a changing model in, um, you were saying about new companies coming through, attacking the old. There's a changing model in how some of the bigger companies mm -hmm. are now engaging with takeovers and investments and things like that. And they're investing a lot more in that B Corp movement. I'm very hopeful as well. I have a similar dream to you. Mm -hmm. um, I think we've got a long way to go, though. 
And on the issue of materiality that, uh, that, that was asked, the idea that how can you be sure that you know, your investors understand the material issues that you see in your industry as opposed to box-ticking exercise, right? I was speaking actually once with mining executives and they say, well, you know what, sometimes I get these investors and they just have this random list of things that they go through. I mean, we are a mining company and they insisted on me telling them what's our work from home policy, right? <laughs> you know, sometimes it's important, but it's not material for, you know, I mean, did you have anything to ask me about you know, uh, mining. So what's your uh, sense about this idea of, do the investors understand what it's important for your business? Or what ways have you found Actually, to convey that information? I'll take a crack at that. That's kind of why we did the environmental profit and loss, because we published that. That is materiality mm. at its utmost mm. core. We're, look, we're taking a view yeah. of our entire supply chain, and we're saying what's material in terms of yeah. cost to nature, I mean, that's it at its essence. Right. So that kind of strips away that conversation. Now, do people understand all the nuances of issues underneath that? No. Sometimes you get questions on it, like I had that show that example from actually a company that a gentleman mentioned that was actually a very in-depth question on a particular topic. But that's pretty rare. Most of the time, people have a general understanding. And hopefully, you can use something like natural capital accounting, or some sort of metrics to help give the story behind why that number's change and what the performance is behind that number. I mean, that's sort of the whole thing is, with even financial results, there's a story behind it. So you need to be able to tell the story. And that helps them understand the materiality because I think in a lot of cases they, they don't understand. Very quick addition. Some of you, many of you will know this. There's a concept called TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, driven by Mark Carney and Michael Bloomberg, which now 500 of the largest companies in the world have signed up to. And the principle behind that is that companies will actually have to disclose what climate change will do to their normal bottom line. Because I think that the trick is not to have your, your annual account here and your profit and loss statement and then in a very different document, some nice stats about, about sustainability, but actually work out if the transition happens in a certain way, what's the physical risk, the transition risk to your P&L? And then all these questions should actually go away because you really are discussing your profit in five years, your profit in 10 years from now. We're still a long way away from it, but I think the TCFD movement is a very important one. So you're kind of alluding more towards integrated reporting, mm. essentially, from what I yeah. hear. All right, I would like to take at least uh, three more questions. Uh, and uh, uh, yes, up there. I'm Adam Lake from the Climate Group, and I head up Climate Week, uh, including Climate Week NYC, where we just had our 10th year last month. I want to ask a question about the generational issue, which was touched on earlier on. Saw some startling research uh, yesterday that showed that teenagers care less about the environment than any previous generation. They trust brands more than parents, teachers, friends. So I wonder, my question to the panel is, to what extent do you see yourselves, your roles as influencing the organizations that you work for? And to what extent do your roles cover the society in which you live? Mm -hmm. Yes, so let's come at the front then, yes. Hi, Sam Baker, 1998 alum here. So much so, I'm from Deloitte. Uh, so, so an observation, a question. So the observation I think is, I think business can be a fantastic vehicle for, for sustainability. But I think it'll only be a fantastic vehicle if that sustainability is reconcilable to commercial returns in some shape or form. So I know we've touched on it, but my direct question to each of the three businesses is, is your investment in costs, running costs, whatever, in sustainability, do you think it's additive to your commercial model, neutral or negative? Okay. 
Any other questions? Yes, the lady here. Hi, my name is Molshri. I recently graduated from London College of Fashion and I write on fashion and sustainability. My question's for Michael and Hege. So in the sustainability framework, we talk about the triple bottom line, people, planet, profit. But given that fashion and also home, which, which IKEA operates in, is, all, is still consumption driven, in the imminent future, are you looking at any alternate business models that can drive us forward, which goes beyond profit? Mm -hmm. Great, and I'll take one more question because this is the last round. Unfortunately, I haven't anyone from this <laughs> section as I do my cold calling. Yes, sir. Hi, yeah, uh, Gus Sigolovich. I run a company called Crowd Estates. We're a startup doing crowdfunding for social impact and impact investing. So again, like, like gentlemen up there, a, a quick observation and a question. The, the observation is I was with a top 40 accountancy firm today and uh, I talked to them about imp impact investing. A partner there said, I don't know what impact investing is. So interesting, are we all talking in an echo chamber? The question is, do we think, and, and slightly echoing the gentleman up there, is I get a lot of questions around if there is impact investing, do we need to change what we want in terms of our, our risk reward and whether or not impact has a, has a relationship with that? Great, thank you. So I would ask my panel to pick and choose which questions you want to address and also give us your closing remark because time flies when you're having a good time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go I ahead. think... An answer to the first three, kind of, crossover, trying to be effective. Mm -hmm. We see absolutely, when we look at sustainability as a term, that's not very, it's not really the right term anymore either. You know, the word is no longer the right word. Let's, I don't know what to call it, but um, the sustainability agenda is absolutely part of our growth. Of course, it's about how we generate new products and services and income streams, particularly when it comes to the circular economy around new business models, around second, third, fourth life of products, materials, etc. And of course, what we see there, and actually linking it back to the, the question around young people, we've done lots of research with consumers and young people in particular around sustainable living and, and behaviours. And of course, yes, on the tick box exercise around, would you want to make the ethical choice? Everyone says yes, but then consumer behaviour sometimes suggests a different behaviour. But of course, we're addicted to convenience and we want our good choices to not cost anything more than everything else. So, our job then as the businesses is to make sustainable living and livelihoods, you know, affordable, convenient, accessible, and ideally fun as well. It needs to be a more sexy place to go to than where we are today. So in all of that, we certainly see that there's a huge opportunity to, to create those products and services based on those needs. So it's a massive opportunity for growth. Of course, when we invest in the, leading, the market leading um, home solar panels and uh, battery storage for homes, that's an absolute growth agenda for us. When we invest 1.7 billion euros in renewable energy technologies, it's, it's us producing renewable energy and starting to sell that, which we are now in Poland. So it's not separate, it's absolutely core. And I think as a bit of a, bit of a closing remarks to um, a couple of the questions earlier as well, is that we are now in a position where, of course, retail in general is going through a massive transformation, particularly around e-commerce and digital. We know that that's a massive challenge and a lot of companies are struggling and have not quite followed that. Of course, we're an oil tanker ourselves. So we're going through this huge transformation as a, as a company and re-engineering the entire structure of how we operate. And that includes layering in to a level of detail of anchoring in sustainability at every possible level in every possible role. So that means that the role of sustainability, and hopefully it's not called that much longer, it's much more about 
I would say, a social entrepreneurial mindset around innovation and how you design business development and innovation with an impact mindset. So, of course, it's, it's really that sort of core of, um, I wouldn't call it triple bottom line because actually that's already been retracted by Elkington himself recently. So, you know, it's, it wasn't quite um, the outcome he intended, but nevertheless, it's more about this sort of integrated holistic value. I try to take all three. Uh, first of all, I completely agree. It has to be an opportunity. It has to be aligned with the business. Otherwise, it will never take off in the same way. It will always be someone's job at the side. When we look at the world until 2050, we see two major drivers of global investment. It's China's Belt and Road Initiative, and it's the transition to a low-carbon economy. Those are our two big global drivers of investment, and we think it's going to be a, a huge opportunity. And if you get it wrong, a huge risk. The question on, on customer engagement, absolutely right. I think we all probably go to many conferences, and <laughs> we are very excited about the people that we meet there, but we always meet the same people. So the group of people that are in this tent is still very small. And so we, our biggest effort at the moment is educating all of our bankers to have the difficult discussions. Because the difficult discussions are not with the coal industry and are not with the wind and solar industry. It is the, the bulk in the middle, the steel, the cement, the construction, the transportation sector, shipping. That's what we need to achieve, and it's difficult. Our bankers aren't trained to have these discussions. Our bankers normally negotiate interest rates with treasurers. Suddenly, we want them to have a discussion with a CEO and a chairman about the future of the company. It's a huge, huge task, and the same is true on the retail side. So we've now launched low-carbon funds and low-carbon insurance products where the, where the proceeds then go into low-carbon investments, but we need to educate our retail customers in that space. And finally, on the, on the impact investing side, and do we need to change our return profile, I think this works like in every other field. There is a spectrum. There are many, many fields of sustainability where the returns are at market level. And we shouldn't dilute them because we think we need to do something good. The returns are there, and a lot of money is going into ESG-aligned or sustainability initiatives because returns are great. But there is a large spectrum where people need to put money in to do something good without expecting returns. And if I look at our private bank, many customers, especially next-generation customers, and the private banking space is the only space where we see the next generation actually changing investment appetite, they are asking for these products, and we actually don't have them at the moment. So one of our big efforts in the private banking space is how do you actually create a portfolio of impact investing products for these customers? Michael? So I think a couple things. One on sort of what is the business case, basically, for sustainability? That's the question. I think for our business, you know, seven years ago, it wasn't so clear. There was, it was a big concern about the cost. What's it going to cost to do these, all these initiatives we were thinking about? Now I think it's an understanding, and I use the scenario of, you know, our business, our sustainability uh, spend, which we publicly announced, was like, it was like $10 million. We really do more than that with all our brands, and, but at a corporate level. But when you think of how much the group has grown, and you think of the kind of issues that we help manage, in some cases prevent, if you want to be a little more in a pessimistic point of view, we're an insurance policy. And the business has grown, but the insurance policy actually hasn't. So the value we generate as a policy, in other words, our coverage, has actually increased. That's one way of looking at, at the business case. And the other is the way I like to look at it is it helps in a way secure in some ways, and again, using that insurance metaphor in a way, or it's, it, I would say more it's a derivative in the sense that we're helping 
lock in some of those revenue streams or helping lock in some of those cost streams. Because if we can create raw materials with, for instance, with regenerative agriculture, which can be at the same cost as conventional industrial agriculture, we can ensure that we're going to have those raw materials in the same kind of availability in five, ten years. If we don't do that, the prices are going to go through the roof. So I think the business case is a lot clearer now. It's not clear for every business, and it's, it doesn't always work. I'm giving, a, will say, a, a view of it that there are some counterexamples, mm. and there are, as in the spectrum, sometimes you have to invest in things. Sometimes they don't work out. I mean, that's, there is a risk-taking element to sustainability. Some of the solutions just don't work after a while. Or you discover, I heard an interesting example of leather made from pineapple. Mm -hmm. That's great, except the environment, the resources go into that, and the social conditions having associated with that, actually it's maybe not so great. So you also have to make sure you're taking a, a, a very informed view of the decision when you make a decision. Last thing is, I think it's really important to have metrics and to measure, what, to know what is an impact, to have a common language. I like natural capital. I like the idea of the, the different capitals. But just to say we need a common language, I still like profits. I'm sorry. <laughs> I still like profits. It is a very good measure of efficiency. Mm. It has to do with the many behaviors that are louder or there's a value judgment you can make about behaviors <clears throat> to attain those profits. But I'm not ready to ditch profits as, as a measure of a business success either. And Mark, uh, if I could actually connect the, the question, especially about the business case, because mm -hmm. in your case, I think through the Natural Capital Coalition, the frameworks, the tools, the measurements that you work with companies, I was wondering if you have seen by changing the way that they see the natural environment, if they have been able to actually see a potential business case that perhaps was not, couldn't see before by thinking about natural capital as a dependence, as a, as a resource. What has your experience been on that? And any other comments you want to make as closing remarks on previous questions? So I think we should, there's a lot going wrong in the world at the moment, we should be hopeful about this. Because we are engaging with companies that have never ever thought about sustainability is a lot of rubbish to them. They don't care about that, but they can see benefit in thinking about it as a capital because actually it's core to their business. It's a dependency. It's something that they need to do. And actually it's just a Trojan horse to get through all of this work we've been doing for some time in many ways. Mm -hmm. It's bringing it together and we are getting to that point now. There are chemical companies we're working with that have never done anything in this space before that are now looking at it, are looking to buy up B Corps and things along those lines. There are companies that have done several approaches where they're identifying materials that they fell below their risk register, where their normal processes within their business hadn't identified it. They're now starting to build this into their design models and investment models. Mm -hmm. So I am extremely hopeful. I think the thing that we should all do, though, is probably go and have a drink in a minute together <laughs> and continue that, that yeah. flow and of wonderful. ideas. We talked about alcohol earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alcohol. Thank you, Mark. So, ladies and gents, thank you again for coming, but please join me in thanking Bert for hosting us, as well as Mark, Daniel, Hege, and Michael for these very engaging discussions and this important insight that they shared with us today. So thank you guys for coming, and thank you for you as well. This was a London Business School Review podcast, bringing you fresh ideas and opinion from London Business School's experts. To listen and read more, visit www.london.edu forward slash LBSR. <laughs> <laughs>